And that chapter, chapter 15, is devoted to the idea of resurrection. Two weeks ago, we looked at the resurrection of Christ. Then last week, we looked at the resurrection of the dead. And so to this week, and our topic is the resurrection of the body. We have seen that there were some in the Corinthian church who were teaching there is no resurrection of the dead. And over the last two weeks, we've thought about how objections um, to the idea of a resurrection, whether it be uh, to the objection to the idea of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth in the past or objection to the idea of a future resurrection of the dead, such objections have continued to surface in the church down through the centuries. With respect to the Corinthians themselves, the idea of a future resurrection of the body would have been, from the point of view of their culturally assumed philosophical assumptions, it would have been very difficult to accept. You see, ancient Greek philosophies tended to draw a stark distinction between, on the one hand, things that were spiritual, abstract, theoretical, such things were higher, pure, exalted, good. And on the other hand, things that were material or physical or practical, such things were inherently lower, impure, debased, profane. So to Greek thinkers, the idea of the body dying and the soul ascending to heaven, a new and perfect spiritual existence, well, that was an easy and comfortable idea. But the idea of becoming flesh again, no, that had to be wrong. And so then, to Greek thinkers, a doctrine of eternal life with God in heaven, a new spiritual existence, yes, please. But the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, a doctrine of the resurrection of the body, oh dear, flesh and matter all over again, please no. And so their objections were these, probably. Unbelievable. Dead bodies don't come back to life. Unpalatable. I'm wanting to escape this material existence with all those associated appetites, so why would God repeat the cycle? And unimaginable. I cannot imagine how a resurrection of the dead will actually work and what it might look like. Well, in our text today, Paul confronts and deals with the foundational objection to the whole idea of resurrection, verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? And to these questions, Paul begins his response with, how foolish, or literally, you foolish man. Uh, now, it's probably just worth noting that the words fool, foolish, and folly, they are strong words in the Bible. How foolish, or you foolish man, is a strong rebuke. Foolishness, in the Bible, usually suggests a profound lack of insight and of understanding, yet such that is culpable 
worthy of punishment, of discipline. The fool doesn't think about the universe in which she or he is living. The fool hasn't the wit or wisdom to simply note that the world around him punishes, for example, laziness. Even if it apparently rewards laziness in the first instance because it feels good to kick back and put your feet up. And this lack of insight and understanding, this lack of observation of the universe around you, that's culpable because even ants know that. They are ignoring information that is available to everyone. In the Bible, foolishness and folly also suggest immorality or amorality. The fool hasn't the wit or wisdom to simply note that the world around him is a moral universe, reflecting the character of the God who made it. It is folly to lie and cheat because such behavior is inevitably self-defeating sooner or later. This is perhaps worth noting because in verses 36 to 41, in answering the questions, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Paul does not preach the scriptures. He does not turn to the Old Testament. No, rather, he argues from nature. Their questions, therefore, are folly. They are foolishness because they are paying insufficient attention to the natural world. From nature, Paul has one fundamental lesson. Indeed, it is an agricultural illustration which I'll now amplify. A farmer puts a seed into the ground. That's a burial service, literally. The seed dies. But a new plant springs up from the ground. Each seed has its own new body, each individual seed a new body, just as God has determined. And each variety of seed, a different type of plant body, just as God has determined. The illustration is apt. A modern mind might object, saying, well, no, actually the seed doesn't die, does it? No, the seed isn't dead. It is dormant, but still alive. In the right conditions, it will germinate, Germination being the, big, the end of dormancy and the beginning of a process of growth and transformation, differentiation, etc., etc. And quite right too. This illustration isn't quite as apt for a scientifically informed audience. A sympathetic response might go like this. The seed, figuratively speaking, does have to die to being a seed if it is to take hold of being a mature plant and growing its own seed. Furthermore, to a scientifically informed audience, Paul, to imagine what perhaps he might have said to us, he, Paul might have said, well, death and renewal, death and new life, are intrinsically linked whenever you examine biological systems. Indeed, death is absolutely essential to new life and transformation. Death is a part of moving forward for biological systems. That's what Paul might have responded. Perhaps Jesus might have uh, responded, or perhaps Jesus might respond by saying, well, yes, the seed is dormant, 
But the dead Christian is not dead. The dead Christian is dormant. They are asleep. Either way, all this conversation about death, it's actually not essential to where Paul is going. The key idea is that whether or not something dies, it can be transformed. Indeed, later on, Paul will say that even those people who do not die will be transformed. So then, just as you sow a seed and God raises it from the dead, verse 42, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is imperishable. It is raised, sorry, the body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. The dead body is buried perishable, dishonored, weak, natural. It is raised imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. Continuity. It is the same body. Transformation. It is so different. It has been transformed. But before examining those three wonderful verses further, you might have noticed that I've just suddenly skipped over verses 39 to 41. These verses are a parenthetical thought. In other words, when verse 42 begins with, so, it's following on in thought from verse 38, not from the verse immediately before it, verse 41. One, one possible way of signaling this um, for the modern reader might be to put verses 39 to 41 in brackets. It's a tangent. It's a parenthetical thought. It's a momentary diversion from the, from the line of the argument, yet it tells us stuff that we'll need to know later. Within those verses, verse 39 to 41, Paul again wants to amplify the preceding thought that God is very good at making all different kinds of physical bodies. A lesson from biology. People, animals, fish and birds all have different types of bodies. A lesson from astronomy. Sun, moon and stars are all glorious but in different ways. And even within one category, the stars. Star differs from star in gloriousnessness. A further lesson, one that will also be needed to, for later, is that God can make some bodies for an earthly existence, and God is also good at making bodies for a heavenly existence. The concern in Corinth might have been a confusion between resurrection and reanimation. You see, in the Old Testament and also in the Gospels, in the earthly ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, there are actually a good number of stories of people being raised from the dead. But those miracles, such as the widow's son or Lazarus called out of a tomb, they were reanimations. It was the same body. The body wasn't transformed. It was the same body brought back to life. Paul's answer is pointing out from nature that the answer 
is already at hand. And that, he is not talking about reanimation, but rather transformation, a radical transformation. Returning uh, to verse 44, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, that last phrase, a spiritual body, would have been deeply shocking to the Corinthian Christians. Spiritual was their word. They loved it. They were spiritual. And they loved spiritual things. And to be thought of as a spiritual church, but a spiritual body was a contradiction in terms. An oxymoron, like a married bachelor. Spirits or ghosts, including, of course, the Holy Ghost, by definition, don't have bodies. And so, in order to explain this shocking phrase, there is another excursus, another diversion is necessary, another parenthetical thought for... Verse 50 does not follow on from verse 49, as you might have noticed, or as you might assume. No, verse 50 follows on from verses 42 and 43. And the dominant train of thought, the main line of the argument, is this. Flesh and blood, the perishable, material bodies that we know and inhabit in this life, ultimately will not do with respect to a heavenly existence. They will not do with respect to the kingdom of God. A transformation is necessary. That's the main line of the argument. The parenthetical thought, the words that could or perhaps should indeed, maybe even be put within brackets, begin halfway through verse 44 and end with verse 49. And as an excursus, what is Paul doing? Well, he's taking a moment to explain to carefully explain what he means by this astonishing phrase, a spiritual body. And he does this by contrasting the natural body with the spiritual body. And in order to unfold his meaning, please allow me for a moment to present these key verses in a very hyperliteral way so that you get a taste of the Greek words that Paul actually used. He says something a little bit like this. Verse 44, if the body is soul kind, also it is spirit kind. And thus it has been written, and the first man, Adam, became into a living soul, and the last Adam into a life-giving spirit. But rather, the first was not spiritual, but rather soul kind, then the spirit kind. The first man from the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As the dust kind, such also all the dust kind, and such as the heaven kind, so also all the heaven kind. And just as those born of the image of the dust kind, so so, uh, we will bear also the image of the heaven kind. These are remarkable verses. Suddenly, Paul is preaching scripture. 
And what is his text? His text is Genesis chapter 2. We might think that a natural body is one that is flesh and blood, matter and physics. And that the spiritual body is ethereal, intangible, um, like a ghost, like the Holy Ghost, invisible and undetectable directly with respect to the five bodily senses. That's not how Paul sees it. We won't be raised ghosts. What our NIV Bible calls the natural body is literally a soul body. Pesuke in Greek, the word from which we get psychologist, the soul doctor, or its Hebrew equivalent, nefesh. Adam became a nefesh living, a living soul. The Adam, now meaning humankind at its point of origin, the Adam was created in the image and likeness of God. So also all who follow him. The new Adam, the new humanity at the point of origin, came down from heaven, an eternal being who had been given life in himself, a self-sustaining life, the source of life, rather than needing the source of life. Staggeringly, so also all who follow him. Thus the distinction between natural and spiritual is not a distinction between material and immaterial, as hoped for by all those Greek-thinking people, past, present, and future, but rather between a Holy Spirit-breathed life on earth and a Holy Spirit-drenched existence in the heavenly realms. And as with Jesus, out of the heart of every believer will gush streams of living water. That, that's staggering. Well, from verse 51... Paul builds to his climax and conclusion. Verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we await a saviour, don't we? We await a saviour from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is risen from the dead, and he is coming back. In the meantime, Christians continue uh, to go into dormancy. They continue to sleep in death, that is to say, to die and be buried, resting in peace, in order to be raised in glory. But not all Christians will fall asleep. Now, as a parenthetical thought, Paul uh, readily acknowledges elsewhere in other letters that when a Christian dies, he or she does not experience death per se, because Jesus has experienced that for us. Rather, they experience immediately being in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. To depart is to be with Christ, 
which is better by far. That's what happens from the point of view of the individual Christian. But from the point of view of us who remain, from the point of view of the world, the Christian is dead and awaits bodily resurrection at the conclusion of history when Jesus returns. How these two points of view might be reconciled is not a question that Scripture answers. And it is probably a discussion for another day. But returning to our text, not all Christians will fall asleep. There will come a time when Christ will come back from heaven, bringing to an end, that is to say, bringing to fulfillment or perfection, the story of humanity. At that time, in a blink, everyone will be transformed, changed. My body will be a different body, a fundamental change in nature. But I will still be me, and you will still be you. In taking stock up to this point, here are some of our takeaway points from 1 Corinthians 15. First, many people hope in an afterlife. Christians do not live in the hope of an afterlife. We live in the sure hope of a resurrection of the body. Second, at and after the resurrection, our existence will be spiritual in a way that we do not yet know, but also material. It is a bodily resurrection to a spiritual, imperishable body. Third, we will all be changed. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Death is necessary for now. Fourth, we will all be ourselves. Many people live in the hope of or in the fear of reincarnation, to which we can answer, no, God got you right the first time. These things are true and to be received, uh, these are true by grace and received by faith through the blood of Christ shed for us upon the cross. Jesus fulfilled the law and paid the price for our sin on the cross, destroying death and giving us the gift of eternal life by his sacrifice and resurrection. Fifth, our future hope is a sure hope because it rests upon an historical fact, the resurrection of Christ. Sixth, death is not more powerful than God. On the contrary, it's a vehicle. It's a tool in his hand, a method, although not the only method, of transformation. But, seven, at the second coming, death, the last enemy to be destroyed, will suddenly be a thing of the past for all time thereafter. Hallelujah. Amen. But before finally concluding, why don't we just take a moment to consider what our text today tells us about bodies as well as having considered what it tells us about the resurrection. You see, the ancient Greeks had a real hang-up about bodies. They just couldn't reconcile themselves to having one. They didn't know what to do with all the appetites that accompanied having a body. They vacillated wildly backwards and forwards between radical denial of these appetites and utter surrender to their every whim. 
Now, the, history, the historians amongst us will know that that's a, a, a simplification, but it is essentially accurate. The first Gentile Christians brought this baggage into Christianity and believed that the gospel affirmed them in their distrust of all that is material and physical, practical and fleshly. Well, in answer to this, the Hebrew scriptures teach that God's creation is good, indeed very good, and that it is glorious to have a body. Without question, we need to learn self-control and we need to learn how to offer the different parts of our bodies to Jesus in his service. But it is not inglorious to have a body. Rather, it is glorious. Now, body differs from body in glory. For example, clothes save me from looking ridiculous. Or perhaps I should say, Clothes save me from looking even more ridiculous. And clothes save others from the glory that would be revealed if there was no covering. For indeed, some people have bodies so glorious that many of us would not be able to cope were it not for coverings. It would be foolish of me to labor that point, but equally foolish not to acknowledge it. For young people, the glory of their physical bodies can be very great. But one person is glorious in one way, another person might be glorious in an altogether different way. And either way, as we get older, we become aware of the fact that the former glory is a fading glory. And that sooner or later, we're going to urgently need an entirely new body. As evidenced by the fact that I've got reading glasses perched on the tip of my nose. And at times, the revelation of the mortality of the body in which we inhabit, now sometimes that can be a profound and life-changing shock and can be very, very frightening the first time we realize, yep, for sure, one day I too am going to die. And that's because for me, whether my body happens to be glorious or not, I'm quite attached to mine. But the good news of the gospel in our text today is that we have the promise in Christ of a new body, a better body, a, a body better in words that we can use. We know the words. It's not perishable, but imperishable, not dishonored, but glorious, not weak, but powerful, not natural, but spiritual. Yet even possibly so, even though we know the words, we can't yet possibly imagine how good that's going to be. And also... Just perhaps as there's a hint in our text today that at, at the resurrection, body will differ from body in glory. Um, so what, what might you do if you want a particularly beautiful body at the resurrection? Well, as ever, the answer is diet and exercise. Diet? Eat the word of God. Exercise, do as it says. For the more Christ-like we are now, the better. True spirituality is not found in ecstatic displays of praying tongues or astonishing full-on-your-face prophecies, but rather true spirituality is Jesus-likeness. For Paul concludes this section in a way that we may not have been expecting. Verse, 30, verse 58. 
Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Serving Jesus, copying Jesus, following Jesus is not futility. For surely those who hope in the Lord, there is always a future hope. Amen and amen. To God be the glory. So in response to what we've heard and before we come to a time of prayer, we have an opportunity to uh, affirm the truths of the faith in the Apostles' Creed. And so I invite you to stand as we say these words together. Um, if the language of the Catholic Church is included here, the intention is that we're acknowledging the worldwide universal church that's united together under Christ, uh, not the denomination. But uh, let's say these words together in affirmation of what we believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> and please join with me as we pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for these uh, truths of the resurrection life and body that uh, Jesus has already inherited and that we look forward to inheriting 